Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton. Welcome back, everybody. Great to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. Great, great, great week ahead of uh, fantastic radio stuff for all of you. Um, Hope you had a restful and uh, enjoous weekend with friends and family or, or just rocking out solo. Much to discuss here on this uh, scorching Monday in New York City. I don't know where you are, but it's like, it's uh, it's hot like the surface of the sun here right now. Global warming! Oh my gosh! And then it'll be cold next week, and then it'll be climate change again. Uh, but let's talk about the lawfare against Trump, shall we? Uh, I mentioned to you last week that this is a troubling tendency in American politics right now. To always find ways, to to try and find ways to trip up the opposition instead of besting them in argument, instead of beating them in a battle of wits, in an exchange of policy ideas and and let the people decide. It's just uh, find a means to handcuff and prosecute and destroy your political opponents. Now, I know that this thesis is complicated by the fact that the Clintons have been so uh, so many times skating right along the edge of prosecution. But just because you are a politician, I'm not saying it's impossible for you to have actually broken the law, as the Clintons clearly have, uh, both, both Bill and Hillary. Isn't it astonishing when you think about it? Neither of them is even the least bit honest or uh, has any integrity. Uh, and yet they're still revered among the Democratic Party, although not quite as much as they used to be. But we see this now, that the opposition against Trump, instead of being along the lines of argument, uh, because that would expose the left, I think, to a discussion about the merits and drawbacks of Obamacare, about a discussion about the merits and drawbacks of unrestrained or only mildly restrained illegal immigration on top of the massive year in and year out legal immigration that we have in this country. I don't think the Democrats believe right now they would necessarily win some of those arguments. And I think they worry that, especially with the midterms looming, they would get crushed in some of those arguments. So what do they do instead? Sue. Undermine and sue. Allege and sue. Make accusations and try to get a special counsel appointed. Well, they were successful in that. And as I will be talking to you this hour, that's very unfortunate. It was a mistake for the attorney general to recuse himself in the Russia probe. It comes as a result of pressure. It was a mistake for the attorney general to appoint a special prosecutor. Uh, The other side is playing dirty and playing politics. And the Republicans, or at least this White House under Trump, caved to the pressure figured that, sure, we should make some show of 
the greatness of the American Republic and our the durability of our institutions and the need to respect the impartiality and the non-political, non-politicized nature of the Justice Department. That's that's what led to these decisions. And now the trap is set. Not just the perjury trap for Trump or anyone else for that matter, but of the entire investigation, the special counsel. It should be noted by all that right now we are at the early stages of former FBI Director Mueller getting going with this vast, and who knows how, uh, how many different threads he'll be pulling on, this vast investigation, bring all these resources to bear, right after James Comey more or less told us that there was no Russia-Trump collusion, but he really doesn't like Trump, and maybe they can get him on something else, so he wanted there to be a special counsel. This should be troubling to all of us uh, that Comey and Mueller are such close friends. This is exposing for all to see that the Justice Department is run by people. And a Justice Department that has people who are ideologues and who do not feel tethered to the text of the law in any meaningful way and who view scoring political points above the benefits of mercy and the benefit of the doubt going to the defendant. These are very troubling signs. And with Comey, I should note, some of what has come out about, first of all, that his intent here was to leak memos to get a special prosecutor, special counsel, whatever, get a special counsel appointed, shows that this was payback, okay? He is not the nonpartisan Boy Scout conscience of America that the media, depending on the day, pretends he is. That's a lie. He is a very self-important, and I would offer to you, vain and sanctimonious individual who has ties to some deeply distressing uh, abuses of prosecutorial discretion in the past. Hat Hat tip, uh, Molly Hemingway over at the Federalist for pulling together some of them. I'm aware of the Scooter Libby case, which was prosecuted by Fitzgerald, Patrick Fitzgerald, who unfortunately went to both my high school and my college, which people always point out. We have that distinction going for us. Uh, What he did there was grotesque. Uh, He continued an investigation looking for scalps. He was hoping to take down some big names. He already knew what happened. He knew that Armitage had uh, let fly something that he did not intend to. There was no intent. It was a mistake. Mistakes like that can happen. Doesn't make Armitage a traitor. They weren't going to prosecute him. He came forward, but they kept going with the investigation. Why? Just see see who they could get. The investigation was solved from the beginning, but see who they could get. What target could they pick off? And Scooter Libby was the one. They wanted Karl Rove, but couldn't get him. But they could get Scooter Libby. The worst kind of prosecutorial excess. Prosecuting in favor of a political cause instead of prosecuting with justice in mind. Comey put Fitzgerald in place to do that. Comey also, I have since found out, and I did not know this, was part of the uh, decision-making process to push charges against Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart, who spent five months in jail, and I'm not laughing because it's funny she was in jail. It's just so unthinkable that anybody would do this to somebody that 
I, I, it's so horrible. And yet, I, I mean, I don't know how some of these guys sleep at night. And, you know, I will tell you something about the Martha Stewart prosecution. I remember speaking to some career NYPD guys who knew all about that case, and they said it was a disgrace. They were like, they're like, look, we're lifelong detectives. We've been putting bad guys away forever. But the FBI guys who made the decisions in that case, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how they, you know, maybe they figure it was only five months. But, you know, I don't think any of them want to spend five months in prison for nothing. For nothing. That was another Comey special. Uh, you, you go and you look at the prosecutions. So Martha Stewart gets prosecuted for lying about not doing insider trading, right? And insider trading, by the way, sort of like classified information, is often a very murky, you know, what's insider, what's just good information, what, you, know, you know, how do you prove someone knew something when they knew it? Uh, and it often comes down to, well, do we want to make an example of this person or not? Which, by the way, is also true of classified stuff. Do we want to make an example of this person or not? Do they get the Hillary treatment? Or do they get the, uh, that I can't remember his name off the top of my head, the NSA whistleblower from some years ago that was like pulled out of the shower by guys with machine guns. He did, didn't actually do anything wrong. They want to make an example out of him. Um, so... That's what we are facing now. The, the recognition of the politicization uh, of the politicization that's going on constantly. And Comey is an example of this. Comey is not somebody that should be held up as, oh, he's he's the, the great uh, truth teller. He's the one that um, will will speak honestly about everything that's that's going on, right? Uh, he's in fact somebody who, in in my opinion, is at the root of the problem, which is a career, which is a a a sycophantic, self-important bureaucrat. By the way, the, the guy I was trying to think of as the national security whistleblower uh, is uh, William Binney. That's the one I see here. It's uh, that he was the NSA whistleblower, um, and they went after. I mean, they went after him with everything. Um, and there's a documentary about him as well. But anyway, um, they 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 really went after him, trying to make an example of him. Uh, so anyway, and he he was a he was an actual whistleblower. Keep in mind, right? Some of the other stuff you see going on here has nothing to do with any of that. Um, so yeah, he was cleared of wrongdoing. This is this is just from looking up on on, on Benny right now. He was cleared of wrongdoing after three interviews with the FBI. But in July 2007, this is off Wikipedia, in an unannounced armed early morning raid, a dozen agents with rifles appeared at his house, one of whom entered the bathroom and pointed a gun at Benny, who was taking a shower. So, you know, when do they when do they send in a SWAT team to pull you out of the shower? And, you know, when when do you get the FBI director standing in front of the American people to say that, yeah, sure, you know, maybe you maybe you violated all kinds of statutes about the handling of classified information for Hillary Clinton. But, I mean, no prosecutor, like, no prosecutor would really do anything about that. I mean, Comey's the guy who's overseeing or directly involved in some of the more, some of the most dubious, most politically charged prosecutions in recent memory. And he's the guy that we're supposed to believe is is a is a fair arbiter of this whole Trump Russia phenomenon. He's the one who's allowed to instigate the special counsel and have his buddy Mueller as the special counsel. No doubt he's going to have to be a witness. Meaning Comey will have to be a witness for Mueller. 
How is this not a conflict of interest? It is appalling what is going on. And whenever you see people, and I will tell you, this was one of the, the greatly, uh, one, one of, the, one of the, the great disappointments from my time uh, working in government, working at the CIA, is when people decide that even the most minute rule matters more than a person, right? When people decide that, you know, they're going to ruin a career of decades or they're going to take somebody who's been out there in the, in, in the field. And, and by the way, it's true of the NYPD as well. Um, they decide that, you know, they're going to be the righteous one who, and I'm not talking about for big stuff, but for small stuff. You know, for a, a, you know, a, a mistake that could have been made in good faith or an error that anybody could make under the circumstances, just crush them. Make an example of them. When you have prosecutors who take that attitude about all laws, when you have the Washington Post, does anyone think this is a surprise? D.C. Maryland attorneys say that Trump flagrantly violating the emoluments clause. They're just trying to find some way to trip up the administration legally because they don't want to handle the administration or they can't beat the administration right now ideologically. So they're trying to use this. Is, this is lawfare against Trump, whether it's the Monuments Clause, the Logan Act with Flynn, any number of things. Now they're saying obstruction of justice. If I hope you can see your way clear is obstruction of justice, then... You know, any time someone's ever been asked, you know, anytime someone's ever been asked for non-public information about a company, for example, uh, and they've said, look, man, I, I wish I could help you, but I can't talk to you about that. I mean, are, are they guilty of a crime? Oh, they, they could have passed along that information about that, you know, that 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 uh, clinical trial for that new drug. I mean, you know, he said he said I wanted to help. I mean, you know, at what point are we just going to turn language into a weapon against each other? It's insane. And it's wrong. And Comey is symptomatic of a much larger problem within the prosecutorial service right now, in particularly at the top level. Look, I'm not I'm not quibbling. One of my one of my best friends uh, here in New York City is a prosecutor. OK, uh, I'm not quibbling with putting away bad people. I'm talking about the political cases, the politicized cases. I'm talking about what's a leak versus what's a whistleblower, what's obstruction versus what's what's uh, conducting your duties. And it's just obvious to me that all that matters to these people who are involved in this right now, whether they're legal analysts or the or Comey or these others who are out there in the government is taking down the administration by any means possible. And they don't care who they hurt. They don't care what happens. And it is law. It is lawfare. It is using the law as a weapon of destruction. We will be right back. Here is a little throwback for you. Uh, this is from June two thousand and three. Martha Stewart was indicted yesterday on charges of conspiracy, obstruction of justice, and securities fraud, all linked to a personal stock trade she made in 2001. Um, the indictment depicted Ms. Stewart as going out of her way to conceal the circumstances of the sale of nearly 4,000 shares of I'm Clone, or I am Clone, I don't know, a transaction that investigators say was made after learning that her friend uh, and his daughter were selling their own stock. Indeed, the charges focused less on the trade than on the elaborate cover-up that prosecutors said came afterwards. 
so at a news conference announcing the charges against Miss Stewart, James B. Comey, the United States attorney for the Southern District of New York, said, quote, this criminal case is about lying, lying to the FBI, lying to the SEC, lying to investigators. Five months in prison for not insider trading. She was not charged with that. But for, they say, a an elaborate scheme of her talking to her stockbroker and trying to make it seem like she was not involved in insider trading. Through all these criminal charges that Martha Stewart spent five months in prison, five months of her life. Um, now, keep in mind, for her, at least she comes out, she's a billionaire, you know, she doesn't have to worry about starving. But for a normal person, five months in prison means you come out and you're unemployable and unhirable for the most part and your life is ruined. That's that's what James B. That's what that's the Comey that the media is now pretending to love that they actually hated, if you recall, a few months ago for a couple of days. But now they love him again. He sends uh, he sends people to prison for uh, alleging. First of all, I mean, they don't have as far as I can tell here, they didn't have transcripts of the conversation. So. They just came up with some like mosaic of this call happened and this call happened. And clearly they were trying to cover something up. And, you know, he told the story and the jury bought it for some reason. And, you know, some juries are dumb. It's just the truth, unfortunately. Uh, I don't have to tell you that. You probably know that from history and just paying attention to stuff. Uh, But, yeah, James Comey pushed charges against. You know, I I didn't know that until I'm angry at myself, actually, because I, I knew that he appointed Fitzgerald. Um, who who should just be ashamed of himself, um, I think, for what he did to uh, to Scooter Libby, um, and that that whole just circus around what uh, it was a circus around an honest mistake made by Armitage that that you know was a, a bone bozo move, but it could happen, and they made a huge thing of it, and they tried to ruin lives over it. So what, what you realize about Comey is that his biggest case, I mean, he's in the he's not just in the sending, you know, you know, you know, cartel guy, send him away. Uh, people that steal a lot of money from people and leave them penniless, send him away. People that kidnap people, send them. You know, we don't have to argue about criminal, you know, I, the criminal justice system when it's actually going after people that have done real criminal stuff is great. And God bless all those who work in it and, and law enforcement, and everyone else. But these very senior DOJ people whether U.S. attorneys, and the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York is a particularly big job in the DOJ, who are making decisions based upon the politics of the moment and looking to make a name for themselves, it's just wrong, and there's so little oversight of it. And I'm telling you about this Martha Stewart thing because what you see here is that Comey has a long history of finding ways to crush people who aren't criminals, but he wants to treat them like a criminal, and he wants to—he wants to put them away, destroy their reputation, maybe ruin their life, because it makes like Comey look like America's sheriff, you know, the last honest guy in town. Well, America's sheriff was willing to leak memos in violation of FBI policy in order to settle a political score. I don't think he just discovered politics last week, my friends. I think that's what this guy's been all about, all along. The 
the Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Scott in Florida on WFLA. What's up, Scott? Hey, Buck. Hey, Buck. Yes, sir. Hey, we love your show down here, man. Thank you, sir. Uh, we're just really tired of these investigations, man. We want our country to be governed. We love everything about Trump. We still love Trump. All this mess doesn't mean anything to us. We're going to continue to vote. These Republicans need to be careful because they're going to be primaried. And, uh, and, and being from Florida here, I'm disappointed in Marco Rubio. And, um, man, I just, you know, I wanted to turn around. I really want to turn around and Trump's taking it that way. Yeah, I, I hope that Trump is able to uh, to take it uh, and, and turn it around. But my friend Scott Shields, hi. Thank you for listening to and supporting the show. You know, it, it should also trouble us. So in the past, well, so far the show, I've been saying that some of the top prosecutors, which is really the most, the power that most needs to be reined in, in my opinion, of all powers given to government is the power to prosecute and incarcerate and to, and to take away property from people. Uh, those are the ones we should be most cautious of, right? You can go back to English common law and Magna Carta, and you know, you, you can't just grab people, take away their freedom, and take away their stuff without really good, clear reason and w- without it being justice, right? And justice is not just because I said so from the government. And we now have a government that has a lot of because I said so in it, a lot of this is just the way it is. Um, the, uh, the tyranny of the administrative state is a Wall Street Journal piece I want to talk to you about in just a second. Very interesting stuff. Um, but first, we are seeing that some of the most powerful prosecutors and uh, actors from within the DOJ have had political motive in their actions and are not beyond reproach, are not above criticism in the least, in fact, are deserving of much greater criticism. We see with James Comey, for example, that he wants to hurt the Trump administration. That is why he did what he did. He wants a special counsel, not to find out what's going on with Russia. He knows there's nothing going on between Trump and Russia. And Trump knows there's nothing going on between Trump and Russia, which is why he was so frustrated by it. But he knows that this will be a political drain. This will allow the enemies of... Remember, it's not just the enemies of Trump. It's the enemies of those who want to work with Trump for uh, limited government, for better economic growth, for immigration controls, for, I mean, just go down the line, a clear message when it comes to fighting jihadism and new thinking and a new approach and a new strategic vision when it comes to defeating the Islamic State. Not everyone who is a, not everyone who wants Trump to succeed is a Trumpist or a Trumper. In fact, I, I am speaking with some knowledge on this issue because I want Trump to su- succeed, but I wasn't an early adopter. I'm, I wasn't one of the people when there were 17 candidates saying Trump's my guy. I'm very upfront about that. But I did vote for him. I do believe in some of the message, and I do want him to succeed. I want him to succeed very much. And, the, of course, the irony is I want him to succeed, which would make America better for everybody in this country, including those who hate Trump the most. They would be leaving. They would be living in a better country. They just may not know it right now. But a stronger economy, secure borders, uh, a national security policy that doesn't involve a lot of bowing, apologizing, and placating our enemies—these are all good things. 
for everyone, right? Less regulatory burden, less government intrusion. These are good things for everyone. Um, but we are seeing that those who are supposed to be the, the guardians of the law are really much more in the vein of the king's royal guard for the previous administration. And, of course, the Democrat Party and the deep state, or I forget about the deep state, the mega state and the Democrat Party, the bureaucracy, the, the, the federal leviathan, the, the monstrous uh, series of agencies and interlocking and connected bureaucracies in D.C. and all across the country, they are more and more symbiotic with the Democratic Party. They are inextricable. They are linked. And this is a problem. So we see that the people that are supposed to uh, execute justice without political consideration and without being biased based upon their own personal proclivity, right? This is what I think. This is what I feel. This is the direction that I think this should go. So that's how I'm going to prosecute and not prosecute. I mean, I have friends who have been on both sides of this as federal federal prosecutors as well as defendants in federal prosecutions. I mean, it, it is a it is a terrifying, it is an awe-inspiring and terrifying thing to face the federal justice system in this country. You are likely to lose, and you are almost certain to be bankrupted, and you will definitely have your reputation marred forever. The decision to bring charges is the decision to destroy. It's just a question of the extent of the destruction. And so when I see someone like a James Comey out there who's picking and choosing and who doesn't even bring... Remember, Hillary didn't even have to take a lesser charge and a plea deal. Nothing. Nothing. For what she did. And other people, Martha Stewart, Scooter Libby, face prosecution and prison time for what? For what? Oh, I need to send a message. I need to send a message that you're you're tough on Bush administration officials and uh, famous white billionaires. You know, tough on them. Tough on white collar crime. It's it's always you know for guys who are and you know just when I mean guys, guys and girls, but for people who are prosecutors in major major cities, you know, gotta show you're tough on that white collar crime. Yeah, because your your kids aren't safe in the playground as long as there are people who are engaged in. Uh, what could be construed under some circumstances as an insider trade, but on, under others may just be good information, right? I don't think that's keeping you up at night. And a lot of that can be handled by the civil regulatory bodies that police this stuff and, you know, should be usually dealt with via fines. And, and it often is, but not with, not with Martha Stewart, not with, not with Comey making the calls. And I'm not even familiar with the anthrax case in detail, and I, it's something I'm going to be reading up on this week, but I also have colleagues who are saying that Comey's handling of that was appalling. Um, and I, I look at this, I look at this as a situation where we see that we have politicians as prosecutors. It's one of the scariest things you can have in a country. And w what better evidence can I give you of this than just li listen to how different the various people who would know uh, listen to the differences in their assessments of what's going on here with Trump and, and whether there's been obstruction or not and whether what Comey did is okay or not. I mean, first of all, let's let's talk about obstruction. Uh, here's Preet ba uh, Bahara. Um, I thought it was Bra 
I always get this. This guy's name. Am I getting his name wrong here? Barara. It's Barara. It was written here, Bahara. Oh, no, it wasn't. I just read it wrong. No, it was written. Okay, whatever. Barara is his name. People always say, people say Bahara, but they get his name wrong on TV all the time. <laughs> I see legal analysts that keep saying, bah, brr, you know, they, they can't get his name right. It's Barara. Um, but he said that there's clearly an obstruction. Now, this is a guy, for those of you who don't know, who was fired by Trump. He had Comey's old job, Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. And by the way, what do you think uh, Barara was trying to make his name on? Oh, that's right. Big, white-collar Wall Street prosecutions. Real popular Occupy Wall Street kind of stuff. Got to show them that uh, those, those are the real dangers to society. Um, but here's what he said about whether they should uh, investigate for obstruction of justice. Oh. I think there's absolutely evidence to begin a case. I think it's very important for all sorts of armchair speculators in the law to be clear that no one knows right now whether there is a provable case of obstruction it's also true, I think, from based on what I see as a third party and out of government, that there's no basis to say there's no obstruction. Absolutely evidence to investigate Trump for obstruction. You've got other people like Alan Dershowitz saying that there's no case for obstruction. Now, there could always be new evidence to create a new case for anything, right? We can only base it on what we know so far. So to say that we don't know because we, don't, we haven't found the evidence yet is to say that you're just that everyone sits around with the borrow from greek mythology the sword of damocles hanging over his or her head yeah anybody could be prosecuted at any point in the future for anything right but if no evidence exists yet we leave people alone to say that well there's no evidence that trump did anything wrong based on what we've seen so far but let's keep looking to see if we find evidence that's not the way this is supposed to work right there's there should be probable cause or at least reasonable suspicion uh, we got nothing. We got nothing right now. But then we get to the Comey leak, by the way. And here's former CIA director Jim Woolsey and his take on the Comey. Remember, Comey told the New York told someone to tell the New York Times about his memos about his meeting with Trump to set the ground before his testimony to hurt Trump. Okay, here is what and by the way, to call it a leak is accurate because it was not authorized by the FBI. It's not necessarily a criminal classified leak. I understand that. But here's what Woolsey had to say about this. I find uh, it amazing that he would take detailed notes of a meeting with the president and then leak them uh, to a, a friend who's at, a, at uh, I think, Columbia Law School uh, and then uh, have them give them to the press. Uh, a private citizen is allowed to share the, his notes, uh, you know, in a conversation with any government official with a friend, with the press. That's leaking involves disclosing classified government information in an unauthorized way, as you well know, no. having been the director of the CIA. Not all leaks have to be classified. There are a number of things that are extremely sensitive without uh, meeting the technical requirements for classification. And I just uh, found it uh, uh, stunning uh, that he would, I think, uh, uh, give up the secrecy of a conversation with the President of the United States. Uh, I've uh, worked for four presidents in different uh, capacities, and uh, uh, not everything you talk to them about is uh, classified. Yeah, but you see the point he's making there? It's one that I made last week. Who can the president trust now? Well, what about the ethical obligation of someone to the president of the United States not to 
share publicly the discussions that are had with the president. I mean, there's supposed to be some level of now the president did not exert executive privilege over this. But if he had, we all know the media would have lost their minds. But there's supposed to be some sense that the president can seek counsel and seek the wisdom of others without the concern that whatever he says or asks is going to get blasted out for the entirety of the world. You know, this does put the president and therefore the U.S. government and therefore the American people at a disadvantage. There's a real cost to this. So uh, Comey uh, acting in this manner, by the way, I think that's why everyone all of a sudden realized this guy is very political and all the stuff to the contrary is nonsense. Um, and that's also why people are looking into his background and finding, wow, this he, he's, he is the prosecutor that gets me angry. He's the prosecutor that when there's no harm and no foul and no ill intent even, still decides to make an example of people. That's the worst kind. Um, but you have others, of course, who will say that Comey's great, Comey's amazing, because it helps their partisan uh, back and forth. It's He's a useful partisan weapon right now. So you have Deputy DNC Chair Keith Ellison, for example. Oh, yeah, Keith Ellison. Here we go. Clip. I question whether the use of the term leak is appropriate. I see Comey as a whistleblower. A whistleblower how? He could have said it before the Senate. Instead, he decided to give it to the media. So what are we to make of that? He did it for obviously political reasons. Um, And he got what he said he wanted, which was an investigation. Do you think, let me, I'll leave you with this question before we go into a break, and then we'll talk a little more about this on the side, and then we're going to get into a whole bunch of other stuff. Do you, you know, Sessions testimony tomorrow, i got to talk to you about uh, the pride parade running into a Black Lives Matter protest over the weekend. Uh, Also, this play in Central Park, uh, Shakespeare in the Park in New York City, that has a a mock, uh, I mean, it's a mock assassination of the president. I don't know what else to call it, under the guise of it being Julius Caesar. Uh, But he's dressed up as Donald Trump. Uh, So we've got a lot of other things to hit today on the show. But let me ask you, do you think that Comey wanted a special counsel because he cares so much about the American people hearing the truth? Or did Comey want a special counsel? Did he move as by his own admission to get a special counsel because he knew it would hurt Trump and he hates this administration and he's just a, a Democrat with, you know, FBI credentials? That's the question I'll leave you with. We'll be right back. I remember I was always very uh, thankful that Megyn Kelly used to have me on, early on in my career, had me on her show on Fox on a regular basis. And now she's over at, at NBC. And she's interviewing Alex Jones uh, on, what is it, the 18th? We're going to we're have to get some of the preview audio of this because uh, Mr., Mr., Mr. Jones is, as I'm sure many of you are aware, quite the character. He doesn't like Buck Sexton. I mean, he thinks Buck Sexton is the government, CIA plant, trying to just take over media, you know, Bilderbergs, the Illuminati. Um, He is quite a character. And uh, I do remember his his back and forth with Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan's like, but but why don't we just ban all guns? I've got uh, got an idea. Why don't we just get get rid of all firearms? And Alex Morgan, I mean, uh, sorry, Alex Morgan, <laughs> Piers Morgan, uh, Alex Jones, um, 
Piers Morgan is all, I'm sorry, Alex Jones is all like, uh, you know, what, 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 what you understand, you know, 1776 will happen again. I mean, he just goes off into another stratosphere. Um, so there we have it. Uh, it is going to be an interesting interview, I am pretty sure. I know the Putin interview, I didn't see it, which maybe I should. I don't find interviews as, as fascinating as some other people do when it comes to these big name interviews that happen. I feel like Putin knows exactly what he, he knows. He's going to give exactly the answer he's going to give no matter what. There's no pushing him. First of all, he's going through a translator. So what are you going to do? You're going to like argue with like, you know, Yuri or Olga or whoever the, you know, the translator is. I mean, you know, arguing through a translator is kind of a tough thing to do in the first place. Right. I mean, um, that's so you start with that. And uh, from there, I just think it's an interesting, uh, you know, people think that there's all this artistry to the interview. Yeah, they're good good interviewers and they're bad interviewers. By the way, I'm just thinking pictures in my head, like, you know, getting really getting really hostile with the translator. Like, how dare you, sir? And he's like, but, you know, I'm just the, the messenger. Don't, uh, you know, I'm the one standing here uh, making the translation. Uh, how dare you? You're oppression of politics. I mean, you can't really... If you're not speaking the same language, I think it's really hard to, like, corner somebody uh, in an interview. But anyway, um, we'll see how this goes. But I want to play some. I don't have the audio for you now. I'll have some tomorrow. And maybe one day I'll play for you. You know, I was just like a little website writer at The Blaze, just, you know, just trying to make ends meet. Just trying to get in this media game, do my thing, spread some freedom, tell some stories, tell some truth. This guy was all like... There he is. I've seen him before. I've seen that smug, that smug, secure, self-satisfied look. It's like, I wish I was smug and self-satisfied. But anyway, you know, he is the government. I was like, I wish, man. The government doesn't even, I haven't, you know, been a part of the government a long time. Government doesn't know me and I don't know the government. Oh, uh, Mr. Jones, interesting stuff. Um, maybe we'll get, maybe we'll get him on the show one day. That'd be quite, that'd be quite a fiasco if we could make that happen. But uh, Megan Kelly. Who knew she'd go for this as a second second big uh, interview option. I'm sure we'll have some fun with the Alex Jones interview after it happens. That audio will be great. We've got a lot more, including Ben Shapiro, coming up here in just a few. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. got Ben Shapiro on the line. He is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of the Ben Shapiro Show, and he also writes for National Review. Ben, great to have you back. First, if I could, what do you think about all of the information that is being unearthed about Comey? Uh, He seems to be a guy who has a long history of some very dubious prosecutorial judgment, especially when it comes to obstruction of justice. Yeah, there's no downside. I mean, if they, if they impeach Trump in 2018, they figure that they get to run against him in 2020. And it's not the same thing as Clinton, who was in his second term when he was impeached. He's in his first term. His approval rating's in the 30s. And they're going to be running you know, some far-left radical against him. So it's important to continue to drive his approval rating down. Plus, they don't have to take the hit of making Pence president because presumably the Republicans are going to keep the Senate. Even if they don't, they don't have 60 votes in the Senate to actually get rid of him. So it's, it's actually a no-lose proposition for them to impeach Trump if they win the House back. So it, it, that's why you know, I think that Trump's counter strategy here has been pretty bad, I think. You know, put, put aside Comey for a second, who I think is, is just always been an egregious player. I thought he should have been fired in June. I thought he should have been fired in October. I thought he should have been fired in January. I thought he should have been fired in May. <laughs> I, I think he should always be fired. But 
put aside Comey for a second. The way that you play this, if you're Trump, is you rely on the supposed veracity of James Comey to to get rid of all the Trump Russia collusion stuff. And then you say, listen, I'm Donald Trump. I say stuff. Sometimes I just say stuff. And and Comey didn't take me seriously enough to kill the Flynn investigation. So he's saying he took it as a directive. That's obviously not true. If he'd taken it as a directive, presumably he would have quit or he would have killed the Comey, uh, killed the, uh, the the Flynn investigation. He didn't. So. Basically, what happened here is I was saying stuff. I say a lot of stuff. I'm a passionate guy. It annoys me that my friend Mike Flynn is under investigation. I'm not going to make any secret of that. But did I try to obstruct? No, I didn't try to obstruct. And James Comey's incompetent, and that's why I got rid of him. Also, your piece here on, uh, or the, the piece on DailyWire.com, uh, Democrats' hypocrisy on Loretta Lynch's election interference is stunning. Totally agree. And I have to say, Ben, for, for those who start to get frustrated with the Trump administration, who are supportive of it, but are like, why do you guys... Uh, you know, why are you making this mistake? Why do you make that mistake? And and want other people on the right or other people under Trump's very big and broad tent to be willing to admit Trump mistakes. This kind of thing with Loretta Lynch just just erase when the media acts like that's no big deal. I feel like now we're just at pure tribalism. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I said this on my own show this morning that, that basically if you think Loretta Lynch is great, but Trump stinks uh, and on, on the Loretta Lynch intimidating Comey issue. Or if you think that Trump is great, but Loretta Lynch stinks, then you're a tribalist. If you think both of them stink or neither of them stink, I think you're consistent. So, you know, the fact is that Loretta Lynch said to James Comey that she wanted him to treat the investigation as a quote-unquote matter. He said it made him feel queasy and uncomfortable. And again, I think this goes to Comey's judgment because Comey then proceeded to actually do what Lynch wanted. He actually called it a matter. He ended up killing the investigation himself in order to protect Lynch, which, which does go to his credibility and his political biases. But the bottom line is that the Democrats who are pushing this off and saying it's not really a big deal are the same Democrats who are saying that it's the hugest deal in the world that Trump said what he said to Comey. The only difference is that Trump actually has the authority to say that to Comey, whereas Loretta Lynch presumably didn't. I mean, she's the attorney general and he's the FBI director, but they're not, it's not like the attorney general can fire the FBI director. Only the president can do that. So it's, it's worse actually coming from Lynch than it is from Trump in, in, a, certain, in a certain chain of command kind of way. So Again, I think that one of the things that's been so terrible about the last couple of years is really exposed a lot of people on every side of the aisle that, that they don't really have a consistent standard. The standard just changes depending on the, whether there's an R or D after the person's name who, who has sinned. We're talking to Ben Shapiro. He's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com and a syndicated columnist, also host of the Ben Shapiro Show. Um, ben, tomorrow's sessions is testifying before the Senate open hearing. Uh, what are your expectations and what should we be looking for? Well, I think the sessions is smart to do it openly. Uh, that, that was one of the questions. Was he going to do it behind closed doors? As soon as I heard closed doors, I thought, this is really dumb. Of course you do it openly, because that way you don't get Democrats to, to leak out what you said anyway and twist it to their own you know, perverse point of view. So I think sessions will do the job. I think sessions will probably say something like, you know, I didn't think it was a big deal as a senator for me to meet with the Russian ambassador a couple of times. Everybody in this room has basically done it. Uh, and for you to claim otherwise is really just a gotcha game. There's no evidence of collusion. I didn't collude with Russia. Uh, I recused myself to avoid the appearance of corruption. So if you're that worried about it, then I'm not sure why you're upset with me. Uh, and as far as the as far as the Comey remarks, that there's other reasons why. I don't know. I don't have the faintest idea what he's talking about. You know, I think it's going to be a wildly disappointing day for Democrats. I think they'll get their rocks off by having some Democrats ask nasty questions to Sessions, but. Sessions has been through this. I mean, he's been on the other end of it. So I don't, I don't think it's going to be quite the same thing as if, God forbid, Trump got in front of the Senate committee. I mean, I think the biggest political boo-boo of the last week is Trump going out in front of the media and saying that he'd be happy to go under oath 
And, and that's just like, come on. I, mean, I, I, I refuse to believe that he would do that. I, I know he does. I know yeah, he's yeah, a yeah. maverick and all that. I refuse to believe he would do that. No, I mean, I, I think that they would legitimately. I think that that Sessions and Pence would legitimately go to the Home Depot by every roll of duct tape they could find and duct tape to him to his chair <laughs> yeah. before they allowed him to do that. His lawyers, Kasowitz, would chain him down in the basement of the White House before he'd allow Trump to do that. I mean, that they, they, any lawyer with with his head on straight would never allow your client to voluntarily go under oath, especially if he's the president of the United States and the Democrats are looking to hang a perjury charge on him. I mean, it's just, it's asthenine. I mean, this is the biggest problem for Trump. Trump is, Trump's biggest problem is Trump. Not, not to say the media aren't a huge problem. They aren't liars and they aren't attempting to twist these stories. They obviously are. Not to say that, that the Democrats are not attempting to, cra- to craft a narrative that isn't there. But this last week could have been actually pretty good for Trump if he had political savvy. And the, re- the reason he won is not because he had political savvy. I mean, I think this is one of the great myths of the last election cycle. He didn't win because he had political savvy. He, ha- he won because he has a gut-level understanding of what the American people feel. And I think that that's something that he can go back to, but that does not necessarily translate into he's his own best lawyer. I mean, no one is their own best lawyer. For God's sake, I'm a, I'm a lawyer. Right, you're a lawyer. You'd hire a lawyer if you needed to, right? I mean, I assume. I, I, don't, I don't represent myself in negotiations I mean, <laughs> because... It's a mistake. So it's again. I just think that Trump's best bet here would have been to say, "Listen, you all know me. I'm a passionate guy. I do lots of passionate things, and everybody who's taking this too seriously is taking it too seriously. You know, this is just Democrats out to get me." And you, you can see that from the Trump Russia stuff, which completely collapsed. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that next. I don't see how people who are trying to cling to any pretense of honesty for most of the major uh, TV news networks and and the various. Uh, major newspaper rooms across newspaper newsrooms across the country, uh, they're, they're having to retract stories. They had Comey say that one major New York Times story was mostly wrong, uh, and and yet there doesn't seem to be any any humility. We have just gone as surely as night turns into day from Trump colluded with Russia to throw the election to we're going to get him on obstruction. Well, what about all those months of the collusion stuff and meeting with with shady Russians and and the sanctity of democracy and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, the pivot was absolutely astounding. And it wasn't particularly shocking because once they have it's a terrier with its with its teeth in in Trump's leg, once they've got him, they're never going to let it go. But again, the Trump-Russia stuff absolutely collapsed in front of them. The only plausible case for anything at this point, like if you're, if you're still on the Trump-Russia conspiracy theory bandwagon, the only plausible case for anything at this point is basically that Mike Flynn or Paul Manafort did something nefarious or Carter Page, that they didn't tell Trump about it, and that Trump doesn't know about it, but he should have known about it because it, he was the head of the campaign. I mean, that's, that's probably the best case the Democrats are going to be able to come up with. And that assumes a fact, not an evidence. Right? I mean, that assumes that that Flynn actually was working with the Russians to, to mess around with the campaign or that Manafort was. And even if they were both in the pocket of the Russians, there's no evidence that, they're, that they actually did anything with regard to the campaign. So, it, it, And nobody would care, Ben. I mean, that scenario you're talking about, I mean, the Democrats would try to make a big deal out of it, but Trump voters wouldn't say, well, I shouldn't have voted for him because of that weird conversation Manafort, again, theoretically, allegedly, or what, not allegedly, even theoretically, may have had. I don't think that'll make a difference to anyone. No, I, I don't think it'll make a difference to Trump voters. I do think that we have to get a little bit out of this bubble of what'll make a difference to Trump voters versus what'll make a difference to Hillary voters. Because, again, we had two of the most unpopular candidates in human history running against each other in 2016 and in 2020. I mean, maybe they'll run somebody just as unpopular as Hillary, but I'm not sure such a person exists. I mean, we almost had to craft <laughs> Hillary from our imaginations to, to come up with somebody unlikable. So, it's, so you know, I, I think that I don't want to write off the fact that this is having some bad impact, all of this, on, on Trump's administration. I mean, he's down to the mid-30s in, in terms of his approval rating overall, and that's not great for him. But is, is this 
unsalvageable? No, I don't think it's unsalvageable. I think that if if he's able to get a piece of health care legislation, even if it's not something you or I would necessarily love, that'll be good for him. If he's able to get tax reform, that'll be great for him. If he's able to if he's able to press through his infrastructure bill, which, you know, I think stinks, but but he needs as a win. If he's able to do some stuff and the economy continues to be good, then it's not a foregone conclusion. Everything goes horribly in 2020. But the Democrats have basically bet on 2018 and they're using the tried and true strategy of just bash the president until he bleeds. And, and that, that's basically what parties do when they're out of power. I mean, this idea that we have on the right that we've adopted, almost we adopted it from the left, actually, this idea on the right that we adopted that, oh, well, it's not enough to just be obstructionist. It's not enough to say no to the president. Well, it was good enough for Republicans in 2010 and 2014. So I don't see why it should be bad. And it shouldn't work for Democrats in 2018. So, yes, this is all part of a strategic game. It's really kind of gross to watch. But unfortunately, that's the way this, this game is played. Ben Shapiro is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. Check out his show, The Ben Shapiro Show. You can also download the podcast, and he writes a column for National Review. Ben, always good of you to drop by. Thanks for the call. Good to talk to you. Uh, Team, I got to say, it's uh, amazing to see how little there is among the media class of any mea culpa, or forget even mea culpa, just sense that they uh, might have overreached on all this Trump-Russia stuff. We just we just do not hear about it at all. There's nothing at all out there about how uh, from any of the major news networks or any of the major newsrooms uh, across the country about, you know, maybe we shouldn't have been asking questions about whether the president of the United States was a traitor before there was any evidence of it. I don't think anybody really believes at this point that Trump did anything or knew anything about the Russia stuff. And if some low level guy did, I, I look, I've said this last week and I agree with what Ben just said now. It's not Trump's fault, and we'll move on. I don't know how many of you have already seen it, but the cover of the New York Times magazine for the uh, June edition, uh, or June 18th or whatever it is, is of Chelsea Manning uh, in, well, a suit, uh, sitting on a chair, and the the headline is Becoming Chelsea Manning, The Long, uh, Lonely Road of the Transgender Soldier Whose 2010 Disclosure of Thousands of Classified Documents Captivated the World, Enraged the U.S. Military, and Ushered in the Age of Leaks. Let me say something to you before we before I get too far into the Chelsea Manning uh, aspect of this. And uh, this is a question that I have uh, posed to Julian Assange. And I found the answer, I mean, unsatisfactory in the sense that I just disagree with him. Uh, to hurt the United States intentionally as an act of uh, either defiance or radical transparency or wh- whatever one wants to call it, but to hurt the United States intentionally is not in and of itself good behavior, purifying for America. Uh, and I know that's a crazy thing to have to say, but the New York Times and others out there seem to take it upon themselves to be the ones who judge when hurting the country is in the country's interest when doing damage to national security is in the country's interest. Uh, And I see what the Washington Post, the New York Times, and and some others view as what should be reported and how they should report it. 
And I often come away from it thinking, this is just, they're just sharing this because it gets them attention and they like wielding this power. And they don't care about the uh, circumstances that may arise as a result of the disclosures. Uh, they don't care about betraying people. You're seeing this more, by the way, that there are, I mean, betraying their country, but also even betraying sources. Um, you know, this is now, uh, I wonder how many journalists are really going to be willing to go to jail to protect sources. And you get into a very interesting territory here, as I've said before. Ethically speaking, I need someone to tell me why, under law, journalists are just as responsible for hurting national security as somebody who worked in the military, worked in the intelligence community. That is the reality under the law. People can tell me, oh, no, that is, in fact, what the law says, as anyone can tell. But it is a policy not to have journalists... Uh, be held to account as citizens for the damage that they inflict intentionally, willfully, knowingly on the United States. Uh, I, I wonder where we draw that line. Uh, I do think it is uh, far too simple for people to say, you know, uh, love the publisher, hate the leaker. Well, if it's information that the public really should know, you know, if the United States government was operating uh, a death camp, in some foreign country, right? If we were just assassinating people by the hundreds that were undesirables for political reasons or whatever, and someone leaked that, and it was very secret information, the leaker would, in fact, be a good person. That's This is what no one ever really... There is, in fact, such a thing as a moral leak. It, it is possible. The leaks that we've seen from people like Chelsea Manning do not fall into that category. They are self-aggrandizing. They are intended to... Uh, take power away from America and from the American government and military and put it in the hands of journalists or leakers or whomever. Um, but uh, a leak is just a, an issue of the uh, information that is unauthorized being shared and that we have, we've been taught because the journalists are the ones that create perception that they can do whatever they want, that they can work with the Chelsea Manning to release all this stuff. Remember, the New York Times was part of that. The Washington Post, New York Times, they, they share all this information out there. And what's really crazy are that people that have formerly worked in the government that read the New York Times, if we see something that we knew about from our time in government, or maybe if we didn't even know, are, are we accountable for not being able to talk about that, even though we didn't know, but now it's out there and it's been published and it's in the public domain? I mean, you know, the government can't even figure this stuff out. But... Holding up Chelsea Manning as some kind of a hero is just disgraceful um, because Chelsea Manning knew that by taking that information, the war effort, those who were out there in uniform, uh, their efforts were being undermined and hurt. I don't care what they say about source protection. Uh, they don't know what the second order effects were of those disclosures, and that could be very damaging. And it was just a, a wildly unethical. Remember, this wasn't a mistake. Chelsea Manning didn't. Oh, I didn't know it was classified or I didn't, which is t which can be tough. Sometimes you don't know if something is classified in, in the world because the, the government thinks that, you know, what people in the intelligence community have for breakfast, you know, one day is classified. I mean, it's insane. But 
to make Chelsea Manning some kind of a hero, uh, largely because of the transgender issue, I should note, by the way. Now it's transparency and transgender equals big story. Uh, this does a disservice to those who serve the country. Uh, this does a disservice to those who carry around the very crushing burden when they're inside of protecting government secrets. And then even when you're outside, having to sort of navigate the world of, well, you know, well, where do my First Amendment rights start and where does my old obligations, you know, end and in terms of, you know, what do I know from reading the paper versus what do I know then? Chelsea Manning just decided, I'm going to do this. I'm going to share all of this. And the consequences be damned. And that the New York Times holds this individual up as a hero is uh, to its disgrace, to, to its absolute and utter disgrace. There was no whistleblowing here. This was just sticking a thumb in the eye of the U.S. military and the United States government. All right. We'll be back in just a few, team. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. We have our friend Matt Walsh on the line. He is an author at TheBlaze.com, also the Matt Walsh blog, and his new book is called The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Life, Marriage, and Gender. Matt, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. Matt, I will have you know that my mother bought and read your book cover to cover. I actually saw it when I visited my folks this weekend on her uh, on her table. So just thought just thought she's a bit she loved it. So there you go. Oh well, I appreciate you know, the review. Yeah. Um, so let's get into some stuff here. Uh, we are um, in the midst of an interesting world where quote the insanity in our culture is your fault if you won't speak out against it. Tell me how. Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, podcast I did last week about, uh, which is related to an article about the situation in Connecticut um, that got a little bit of attention where the uh, there was a, 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 I guess they called quote-unquote transgender girl, but a, a boy who competed um, against the girls in the state championship girls' 100-meter uh, and 200-meter races, and he won both races against the girls with a time that, by the way, would not have even placed among the boys. I think he got like a 12-6-6, a 100-meter dash, which is pretty slow. The boys uh, wouldn't have placed against the boys. He beat all the girls. And, um, of course, it's a totally crazy situation. And this also, by the way, is a boy that has made no attempt to even, like, appear. He's got a mustache. He's made no attempt to even appear like a girl, not that it matters that much. But, uh, and, but the thing that jumped out at me about this story is that not just the craziness of it, uh, but just how – you know, nobody's say where are the, the parents of these girls who are being treated out of, cheated out of their, out of their, you know, accomplishment. Um, I'm not, I don't know for a fact that none of the parents have spoken up, but there wasn't this outrage that you would expect. And, you know, there are things even like the, the local sports writers. I, re I read a, an editorial by the local sports writer for the Hartford current who, um, who said that, you know, he's, he's, he, he raised some questions about whether or not this is fair to the girls, but he made sure to preface that by saying that, well, we should celebrate the accomplishment of this transgender person and what, what a wonderful thing this was for, I mean, and we all know how crazy this is and how wrong it is, but nobody is willing to, to stand up and say anything. And so that to me is, is the real story. And um, all of us who have remained silent in the face of this craziness, we're, we're really the ones to blame. And I think we should be ashamed of that. I often discuss on my show what I think is a continuum and it starts with, 
uh, tolerance and then goes to uh, celebration and then goes to uh, submission. And I think on this issue, we're there. I mean, Matt, I have to say, I don't, well, before I even move on to the uh, workplace pronoun issue, uh, I assume now that that fellow high school students, would they're not allowed to voice their opinion that they shouldn't be competing, that, that high school girls shouldn't be competing against a guy. That would get them in trouble, right? It, this isn't even now social pressure or what's cool, meaning that, you know, the cool kids take one position or the, 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 the popular position is one thing. I bet now you would face sanctions in the school for speaking out against this. And if you don't already, you will in a matter of months. Yeah, that was one of the most, I mean, really heartbreaking aspects of this story. And, and uh, a quote that jumped out of me from the, from the news article I read about it. The girl who came in second, really came in first, but the girl who came in second, I think it was in the 100-meter, she won last year. She came in second this year, beat by a boy. She should have won. And she's being interviewed. You know, she's, in, she's in tears about it, justifiably so. And she says uh, something to the effect of, you know, I can't say what I want to say. I, I, can't, I can't say anything. But it's frustrating. So they, this girl has been forced to submit to this boy who has come in, appropriated not only her identity, but stolen her accomplishment from her. And she's not allowed to say anything. She just has to just, you know, wipe her tears and act like she's okay with it. And that is, uh, you know, we talk about all the time, but where are the feminists on this? That, they, that not only are these girls having their identity and their accomplishments taken from them, but they're being, as you say, the word is submit. They're being forced to submit to it and remain silent. Basically, shut your mouth and go along with it. And uh, it's, it's, you know, this would be an occasion for the feminists to come in with all of their things about appropriation. And, and uh, this will be a time for that. And uh, yet you don't really hear from them. We're speaking to Matt Wall. She's an author at The Blaze. And also his latest book is The Unholy Trinity. Matt, uh, I-, I wonder now if we're at a place where, you have to use a preferred pronoun under pain of possible firing and lawsuit. You know, the New York Times wrote this very lengthy, I don't know if you had a chance, if you saw it, I mean, it just came across my radar a couple of weeks ago. They wrote a thousand words on how they were sorry for misusing a pronoun about a character on an HBO show called Billions, which I actually watch. The character prefers to be called they, but in their article, in the New York Times article, they didn't use they because they do have some misgivings about using the wrong pronoun in terms of plurality. Gender they're okay with, but plurality seems to be a step too far. And I just wonder, are we at a place now where someone can demand under non-discrimination uh, legislation in the workplace that I have to call them they? Or do I, what, if, what if somebody identifies as his royal highness? Why, why can't they do that now? I don't understand why that's not the way someone can designate. Yeah, I think we're seeing the beginnings of that, and I and I don't see with, with the, uh, you know, with the precedent as it's been established, I don't think there's any way of of really stopping it, and especially just with the way that we in our and just generally speaking, the way that we in our culture and our society uh, interpret this idea of human rights, and we look at it as, you know, there, there was there was the way that our that our founding fathers looked at it, which is the right way, and then the way that we look at it, which is, you know, we have a human right to be to have other people kind of treat us exactly as we think they should even you know just just we have our kind of version of reality and we have a human right to have everybody else around us kind of go along with it no matter if it's no matter if if our reality conforms with actual reality or not and now that we've established that and that we have this human right to that then uh then yeah there's no there's no there's no really pulling back and if if they i mean you look at in the schools what they've done with title nine I mean, if they could do this with Title IX, where they Title IX was originally supposed to 
be there to ensure, at least in large part, that girls had opportunities in sports. And now they're using that exact thing to ensure that girls don't have opportunities in sports anymore. So if they could take stuff like that and completely turn it on its head and reverse it uh, without hardly any pushback, then there's, there's, there's really no stopping it at this point. By the way, I saw you tweet about the Equality March, which I'll be talking about a little more later in the show, and I mentioned it on Friday. Uh, first of all, I think it's fascinating that an Equality March is now inherently an anti-Trump march, even though Trump is more pro-same-sex uh, marriage than Obama was at this stage in his presidency. That's just a, a fact. Obama ran as a traditional marriage candidate. Uh, but the Equality March is against Trump. But as you point out in your tweet here, uh, it's not about equality. It's actually about special privileges and special treatment. Explain. Yeah, there is no, uh, you know, it's just like with the Women's March. It, it's like point to a particular area where you actually do not have equal rights because you're not going to find it. Um, they have, it's, if, you're in the hom- if you're a homosexual, you have all the same rights. And I would argue that you eat, but even, even before you had the quote-unquote right to marry, you still had all the same rights because we all had the right to marry a member of the opposite sex, so it's still equal rights. But it, even so, you have all the, the rights now, all the, all the same rights. Um, now what you're looking for is exactly that, is special privileges and entitlements. Um, and, and that's what, and I think that they need to be honest about their goals. And I, and when I said that, of course, there were people arguing with me. One, one of the big things that came up in response to my argument was, well, what about the right to adopt children? And there are still states where I guess where, um, gay couples aren't allowed to adopt children. This is what I'm talking about. That's, you don't have a human right to adopt a kid. You have a human right to, if you conceive a child to, you know, bring that child into the world. And, And that's why we don't live in China. Thank God. But a human right to adopt a, ch- a kid? What, what kind of right is that? The, kids are not like objects that you have a right to, to possess and own. Um, kids have rights of their own, and I would argue they have a right to a mother and a father. But before you even get into that discussion, that is not a matter of human rights. And to, to, to say that it is is ridiculous. Um, so that's not a, a good response to my, to my challenge. And so I would still maintain that they have all the equal rights in the world, and now we're just moving on to, uh, to entitlement. And uh, tell me about this Pennsylvania supermarket shooter who self-identified as a transgender woman who hated all men. Uh, You point out here that this is not something the mainstream media is reporting on. And that's certainly true because I didn't see it until your tweet. Yeah, yeah, I didn't I didn't see it either until it was uh, passed along to me. And uh, just the story itself of the shooting has not gotten a lot of coverage. But uh, I mean, this is it's really disturbing. If you read it, if you just go online, you read the story. I think it was on Heat Street that I found it. Uh, this was a, you know, a, a boy that decided he identified as a, as a girl because he hates all men. And uh, that's part of what this, he was, he was upset about, there was something about, he was upset about, they, they made him wear a, a name tag with his male name on it. And that's one of the things that sent him over the edge. And I'm not saying, of course, that, you know, all transgender people are taking time bombs. They're about to shoot up their places of work. I'm not saying that at all. But if you look at what this guy said, I guess it was on YouTube. Um, you know, coming out as transgender, talking about what his problems are with the world. He's a big hater of men. That was a big thing. But you see this link between, you know, transgenderism, mental illness, and self-loathing. And you see all of that. You, you see it turned up to an extreme with this particular person. But I think you find it in general in that quote-unquote community. Um, and that's why you're not, this story isn't going to get a lot of attention. But, but, but it should because you, you kind of it, – it gives you a, a look into the mind of someone who struggles – with these kind of identity issues. And it's just a shame that, you know, these days they can't reach out and find actual help, actual psychological help, which is what they need. Instead, they find people 
encouraging them to indulge in the delusion even more. And I think it just uh, makes the situation a lot worse. Yeah, it's required. It's required affirmation. In fact, it's required celebration now from people around a transgender individual. Uh, this is this is not to be helped or assisted or even uh, just live and let live tolerated. This is to be applauded. That's what we're told now. Right. To be applauded. And the thing is, and, and nobody wants to talk about it, you're not allowed to talk about it, but, but the fact is, uh, if you if you listen to what you know people transgender people say, it, it's clear that like I said, it's self-loathing that they actually are not happy. They're not finding happiness, and when they transition transition to another gender, they're still not finding happiness. And when they get the sex change, they're still not finding happiness. That's why the suicide rate remains stagnant, no matter what they do, no matter where they live. If they live in an accepting culture, not accepting. If they get the sex change, if they don't get the sex change, if they transition, if they don't. Suicide rate remains astronomically high, and the reason for that is because they are not happy. There's a deep misery within them, um, and they need help, real help, to to really love themselves for who they actually are in reality. And they're not getting that help, and uh, it really it's just a it, it's a tragedy. It really is. Matt Walsh is an author at theblaze.com. Check out his latest there, also the Matt Walsh blog. And his book is The Unholy Trinity, Blocking the Left's Assault on Marriage, Life, and Gender. Matt, great to have you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Buck. Team, we will be right back. I mean, you really can't make this stuff up. Uh <laughs> Over the weekend, I told you there were a bunch of parades, marches planned, including the Puerto Rican Day Parade here in New York City. And there were also uh, March for Equality uh, protests or marches or both uh, across the country. Uh, Well, you know, who knew Black Lives Matter was also going to have an event. And in D.C., uh, two events, a Black Lives Matter protest and the D.C. Pride Parade came to a head. I mean, you literally had intersectionality in real time. Black Lives Matter uh, versus the Pride Parade. Here's how it sounded. So chants and, and all the rest of it going on, of course. Um, but you had the Black Lives Matter protesters stopping the police. But you see, the police were necessary for the progress of the Pride Parade. And this this sort of turns into a, a, a rock, paper, scissors situation in the sense that, you know, who wins? Who stands aside? I mean, they're playing chicken here out on the road with two protest movements literally colliding. And, you know, what do they do, heads or tails? I mean, you know, what, what do you do here? You had the protesters on uh, one side, and you also had the uh, Pride Parade on the other. And like I said, I, I'm, parades are fine. I don't particularly enjoy them or like them. You know, marches for different things uh, are not really um, my jam. They're not really my bag, as they say. Uh, but it's fine. It's just interesting here that DC's a pretty big place and that you had uh, two leftist movements uh, the lgbtq plus pride uh, march literally coming uh, into direct or you know butting heads with ramming into a a black lives matter protest was a very interesting situation um 
So they, yeah, they blocked their route, by the way. Uh, so let's understand this. It wasn't like they, they came to a, uh, a, an impasse and they were like, oh, like my, my brothers and sisters of the LBGTQ movement. So good to see you fighting for uh, your equality and, and civil rights as, as we in the Black Lives Matter movement say we are doing too. Why don't you come right this way? We will clear up. No, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh, so they, they had to reroute the parade. They forced them, the Black Lives Matter protests, forced them to reroute the parade. In a sense, they're kind of hijacking attention away from pride for Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, we haven't seen a lot of Black Lives Matter activity in a while. I should just note that we are probably one high-profile case away from seeing a Black Lives Matter movement that is much more... uh, What's the word? Um, uh, full of uh, outrage at the state of policing in this country. I'm I'm being incredibly polite because I am, but we're you know we're much closer to I think seeing a Black Lives Matter movement under a Trump administration that will be uh, bigger, uh, more widespread, and perhaps yes, I think much more destructive. Um, than what we saw under the Obama administration because of President Trump. So we haven't seen this yet. There's been such a focus on, because that was, by the way, largely uh, a media uh, a media narrative, right? They would take a local crime story, make it into a national news story. Uh, President Obama would comment on it and, and it, and it was an area that was as always seen as an area of strength for the Democrats, right? So they will call out police brutality along with the protesters. So it served the purposes of the administration. With a Trump administration, if you get a high-profile shooting incident involving a, a black or Hispanic um, uh, individual uh, being shot by a police officer, I think you, you, you will see, I believe, I'm just guessing here, but... They haven't. It's not like the movement has gone anywhere. The protesters and all the, you know, the Soros money and all the other stuff that gets poured into this. I think you will see a a reinvigorated and much more um, aggressive Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, aggressive in terms of uh, their demands uh, and their desire for. Reform and, and yes, I think there'll be elements uh, within that movement, just as we saw before, that will turn to destruction and to violence. So this is just a prediction. But I think if you see a high profile shooting, Black Lives Matter is going to be uh, all all over the place once again. Um, but yeah, in this this showdown between the Pride Parade and Black Lives Matter protesters, Pride Parade got, had to be rerouted. Um, so it wasn't a big deal, but just with the video of it, it was pretty. Uh, pretty interesting to see how uh, how this went down, um, and uh, yeah, I uh, I wasn't there, but I uh, saw the video. Uh, team, we've got a lot coming up here in the third hour, including a Shakespeare in the Park that involves Donald Trump. You are not going to miss that. Back in just a few minutes. I mean, it involves an uh, uh, an effigy of Donald Trump, I should say. Back in a few minutes. <laughs> Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. One of the 
things you often get asked as a New Yorker by people from out of town is, how often do you go see a Broadway play? How often do you make it to the theater? And I always kind of laugh and say, um, almost never. Uh, I've been many times uh, in years past, but it has been quite a while since I have gone, having had numerous experiences of... I guess we just had the Tony Awards, right? Of Tony Award-winning plays. The Tonys are like the Oscars for stage plays. Uh, Went to see the hottest ticket in town. Everyone's talking about it. And I just could think to myself, this is complete garbage. Uh, And of course, the politics of New York City theater are more extreme in their progressiveness and leftism and anti-God anti-Republican, anti-white male-ness than, than almost anything else you could possibly find anywhere. I mean, it, it's like you're sitting down with the Diversity and Social Justice Coalition at uh, that college up in Washington State that I'm forgetting, Green, not Green something or other, uh, that college where they have the crazy stuff going on. Um, that's what it's like with theater in New York City. I mean, I remember seeing a play, not the last play that I saw which is a, a celebrated play called The Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And I can't even really describe to you what... I mean, it's about someone who is transgender and uh, removes a part of uh, his anatomy. And, I mean, it is it is just, wow, uh, and just not very good. And it's been celebrated. It's been on Broadway a lot. So Broadway, you get all this progressive stuff. But you'd think there are... I don't know, maybe some lines to all of this, but of course that is not the case as we see here. Now, Shakespeare is a treasure for all generations, and I know I sound like a stuffy wannabe English teacher here, uh, but Shakespeare is incredible, as we all know. Uh, you pick up a Shakespeare play, read it, go see it even better, uh, or watch a televised version of it, and... Shakespeare is a genius of the written word, the way Mozart was a genius of uh, music. And I've always wanted to go see Shakespeare in the park, but in in New York City, they, they have this production of Shakespeare every summer in Central Park. I've never been able to go, um, mostly because to go, you have to sit in some very long line. And now I think there are people that you can even pay. It's like Uber for lines. Uber is a ride-sharing service, you know. Now you can get somebody to hold your spot in line somewhere. There are apps where you pay someone to wait in line for you somewhere. I mean, this is a thing that's it's real. I, I know people who do this. And then they try to resell the tickets. And So going to see Shakespeare in the Park, the tickets are supposed to be, I think they're free if you wait for them, but you have to get there really early, and they make it a big hassle. And just like anything, it's never really free. You're either waiting for hours in the morning or you're paying someone to wait for you. And no such thing as free in this world. But I've always wanted to go to Shakespeare in the Park, and now I think I'm probably never going to go to Shakespeare in the Park. I'll have to find another Shakespeare theater company to uh, help me scratch that itch because uh, we have here. And remember, this comes in the aftermath of the whole Kathy Griffin uh, Trump beheading photo that she got into all that trouble for. And then in, in a remarkable in a remarkable turnabout, uh, acted like she was some sort of victim, and it's all so sad, and how could anyone have done this to her? And, you know, the Trump's people are coming after her. 
Um, but this is what's happened. So th that occurred, right? The Kathy Griffin, Donald Trump severed head, and she lost her CNN gig. And it's been tough for CNN recently. Reza Aslan lost the CNN gig. I will say that with Aslan, uh, I, I agree with some of my... Reza Aslan's a CNN host of a show called Believer, which they've since said they will not pick up. And I agree with some of my conservative colleagues whose position on this is that they don't like people getting fired for one tweet. I, I agree with that. Um, and so let me just say that Reza Aslan's entire body of work, so to speak, the way he is on TV, the way he is on Twitter, is uh, coarse and full of invective and is grotesque well beyond just this one tweet about how Trump is a piece of blank, as he wrote very publicly. So that's why I'm like, Aslan's got to go. It's not because I think that people for one errant tweet should necessarily be fired. I just do not. Uh, I just I think that when you look at the totality of who this guy is, uh, he's he's a liability for CNN. He actually is a liability for CNN for exactly this reason. So I, I find Aslan to be um, disgraceful and he's gone. Uh, but generally speaking, you will hear me defend people for one wrong comment, one bad. I mean, I think everyone should get a. Uh, everyone should get a second chance, except in the most extreme and malicious circumstances of, of the issue, right? I mean, you know, obviously not if you kill somebody or you, you know, something horrific, but in content world, in creative world, I think you get a second chance. But I digress. And now I'm going to tell you about a time when I don't think there should be a second chance because it's, it's so egregious. And um, well, it's not even about a second chance. That's, that's not even the right formulation of it. Let me, let me just tell you what's going on here. So Shakespeare in the Park always wanted to go, had dreams when I was a high schooler that, you know, I'd take my beautiful girlfriend that I did not yet have in high school, but you know, we'd go to Shakespeare in the Park together and it would be amazing and perfect and, you know, like, uh, like something out of a, a, a 90s rom-com. Never been able to go because hard to get tickets. And as I said, there's all these other hurdles now that are in place. So the tickets are supposed to be free. Meanwhile, here I am, a lifelong New Yorker, and I've never been able to get it together to go to this thing. I, uh, I couldn't believe for a moment when I read it, and then I thought, oh, no, this is the environment we live in now. This is the anti-Trump world in which we find ourselves. Uh, but here's what happened recently. They were doing a production of Julius Caesar, which, as you all know, involves Julius Caesar being assassinated, assassinated by members of the Senate, uh, you know, et tu, Brutus, all of that, right? So they're doing this uh, assassination, of, or they're doing Julius Caesar, and of course there's the assassination scene, the, well, really one of the most famous moments, one of the most famous assassination moments in all of Western history and literature, right? I mean, it's up there with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, and really, I think Julius Caesar's even more famous and, uh, for the assassination. Or, you know, it's been around a lot longer. Anyway, I don't know how you compare those things, but you understand what I'm saying. It's a big deal. We all know Julius Caesar stabbed a lot. Uh, they chose, as Julius Caesar in this play, a, quote, petulant, blondish Caesar in a blue suit complete with a gold bathtub and a pouty Slavic wife. Uh, uh, this is Trump, everybody. They depict Julius Caesar as Trump. Uh, they And there are other aspects of the play that are... And look, this is a New York City, Shakespeare in the Park, very public, very prominent, storied franchise uh, of, well, I don't know what... You know, it's been a... 
a, a production every summer that people have been talking about in the city for a long time. It's a very New York thing. Uh, and there are other aspects of this as well that point to Trump uh, as the target here. Uh, the set design has, remember, this is supposed to be ancient Rome. There's a preamble of the Constitution. Some of the costumes have people wearing anonymous masks. There are even some of the very uh, grotesque and vulgar hats worn by some of the people on stage on this, you know, this is, remember, Shakespeare in the Park, Julius Caesar. They've got Trump as Julius Caesar, and they've got people wearing anonymous masks, like the masks for, uh, you know, the Occupy Wall Street folks and uh, Anonymous, the hacking group, and also the hats that are anatomically correct female hats, I don't know how else to describe them, uh, that some anti-Trump protesters wear on stage. So it's very clear that this is supposed to be the current president of the United States. They are putting on a, a, a public play showing the assassination of the president. That's what they're doing in Central Park. Uh, and some people uh, who are sponsors of this, including Bank of America and Delta, are cutting ties with this. But, of course, the New York Times is standing behind them. Oh, it's all about artistic freedom, don't you see? It's all about uh, expression and ideas. It's not about demeaning and, yes, even threatening the president. Uh, so here's what the Times wrote. We have sponsored Shakespeare in the Park for 20 years as an institution that believes in free speech for the arts as well as the media we support the right of the public theater to stage the production as they choose. Um, you're supporting it. You know, to support them doing this is to be complicit in what they're doing. You know, they don't get to pull a Pontius Pilate here, the New York Times, as a sponsor of this and wash their hands. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. They are uh, a party to this. And this comes at a time when we've seen uh, this uh, really violent uh, propaganda against the president of the United States. And I, I don't like the whataboutisms because they, they become just a, a crutch for people's lazy analysis, right? Because uh, there's so much that's different in terms of the media treatment with Obama. But sometimes it's unavoidable. I don't know what else to say. And we all know that if you didn't have Trump, if you had a clear depiction of Obama in this Julius Caesar play in this way, there would be, I think there would actually be riots. I think they would be burning things down in the street. I think people would be in a complete and utter freakout. And yet here we are being told that this is, by the New York Times at least, that this is art, that this is just the way they choose to show all of this. Uh, they are staging a mock assassination of the President of the United States in public view. Now, there's a reason why threats against the President are taken differently uh, than just uh, a, well, certainly than a fictional or historical figure, right? You can threaten to kill Julius Caesar all day. That's fine. That shouldn't upset anybody. You can kill Julius Caesar all day because not a real person. Uh, or, you know, somebody who's been dead a very long time. But the president is a symbol, 
And given the level of hatred that exists in this country and the history we have of both attempted and realized assassination attempts on a sitting president uh, to in any way normalize or ex- or uh, explain away or try to justify what is really just violence, violent thoughts against the president takes us down an incredibly dark path. I promise you. People often say, oh, if Trump appointed his kids to be his top advisors, I mean, they were really, really young, but wouldn't you have had a problem? And I'd say yes, and I have a problem with Trump appointing his kids to be top advisors. I don't think it's you know, high treason or anything, but I, I think that it's a bad look. I think that it shouldn't happen. Okay. But uh, I would not have been okay with a right wing, not that there's such a thing that even exists really, a right wing theater group. I mean, maybe it exists, but I, you know, I don't, it's not a, thing, not, not a thing that anybody in New York knows about. Uh, a right wing theater group staging a, a uh, Julius Caesar with Obama as Caesar getting stabbed on stage. I would not have been okay with that. Because there are some basic principles and there is some basic decency that we should all uh, defend. And that the Times comes out on defense, it just goes to show you now that what they're really doing is erasing the old boundaries. This is what the media has been in the process of for a while. That the president, and, and, and of course, along with it, there's, this is a corollary, the president and all those who support him are beyond salvation. They are beyond defense they are beyond uh basic courtesy uh they are to be shunned they are to be humiliated they are to be defeated they are to be destroyed that is the purpose of what the media is doing with trump and his supporters and that there are these uh art groups out there or art artists if that's what you want to call a a hack comedian like kathy griffin who clearly see that there is a a push in this direction maybe maybe Kathy Griffin even for the crazy left goes too far although you know she'll be back doing comedy tours in no time trust me they they'll forgive and forget her uh or forgive and forget what she did um uh, but that there's not a universal outrage on the left about exactly what's going on here just shows you that they have become overtaken by a, really a form of, of, of illness, a, a psychosis. Um, they believe that this president is destroying the country and that there will be countless lives lost as a result. And if one really believes that, you begin to ask some very difficult and very dark and very ominous questions about, well, where does one draw the lines if one is a progressive leftist who believes that Trump is destroying America? When it comes to art and representations of, uh, of politics and this presidency, they, they don't believe there are any lines. Uh, they don't think that there's anything that goes too far. And that is, that is troubling. And that a place of the stature and reach of the New York Times is willing to defend this stuff in any way is just indicative of how depraved uh, our politics have made so many people. Uh, in the current era. All right, we're going to hit a quick break, team. Much more coming. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. We lost three soldiers over the weekend. Uh, The Pentagon has identified uh, the three who were slain, Sergeant Eric uh, Houck, 
Sergeant William Bays and Corporal Dylan Baldridge were all part of the storied 101st Airborne Division. They were killed in Nangar province, uh, and another soldier was wounded in the attack. The gunman, the infiltrator, was killed, and the, uh, the Taliban has taken credit for this attack and has uh, called the gunman an infiltrator. Now, these uh, green-on-blue, as they're called, attacks are nothing new, unfortunately. Um, in fact, there was one period in 2012 when they were as many as 15% of the U.S.-led coalition deaths in Afghanistan. Uh, it's according to the Long War Journal. Uh, they started taking new measures as a result of that um, and having to put new precautions in place because there were so many of these insider attacks. Now, first off, the loss of three is a reminder that we are losing uh, our brave men and women in uniform still in Afghanistan. And I know that people, because the numbers aren't high, uh, it doesn't get as much media attention as it should. Um, but with every soldier that we lose, we should be asking the question, why, why, did we, why did we lose that soldier? Why is another family getting a folded flag and their lives uh, changed forever? Uh, a loss that will never be able to be uh, filled, a loss that will never truly go away. Uh, what is the mission now in Afghanistan? What are we trying to accomplish there? Do we have the right force structure? Do we know what the goal of all of our efforts over there right now in Afghanistan, where we've been for 16 years, do we have answers to these questions? If we do not, it is incumbent upon us to have a national conversation. Our politicians who spend so much time on this Russia witch hunt nonsense and so little time on what are we going to do about the longest war in American history? Are we going to send in another 150,000 troops? If so, why? What will the objective be? Are we going to force the Pakistanis to take a stand against what's going on on their side of the border? Can we even do that? Are we worried about Pakistani stability if we apply too much pressure to their government to help us? Because without taking out the Pakistani sanctuary, what we do, what the Afghan national forces do in Afghanistan will not be sufficient. We will suppress the Taliban virus at best, but we will not eradicate it, and therefore it can come back. Where is this discussion? We're not even having it. No one's talking about it. And I find it deeply frustrating and uh, disconcerting that there's all of this energy and effort and time and money spent on the latest iteration of nonsense about Trump and Russia and we are losing ours still in Afghanistan. And there will be more. We don't talk about it. Politicians put it on the back burner. It's just status quo over there. Well, it shouldn't be. And I really hope that we spend more time as a, as a country, as a nation, on what we should do about our longest ever war. We'll be right back. I think we've all reached the point of frustration, saturation after a terrorist attack. What I mean by that is whenever there's one of these horrific acts of jihadist violence uh, anywhere in the world, there are these responses that you can expect to come from the media. They'll talk about how this is the result of 
uh, inaction on terrorism with our partners abroad, or this is because of U.S. foreign policy, or this is uh, aberrant, this is nothing, don't pay any attention to it, it's like a natural disaster, it just happens, terrorism just happens. You hear all these different versions of events after a terrorist incident, and you know that your politics, the, the politics of the individual, uh, line up with one side of responses or the other. And one of the more uh, frustrating aspects of responding or, or response to terrorist attack is the sense of uh, virtue signaling that I think does go on after this. It's one thing if a community wants to hold a candlelight vigil for the victims of a terrorist attack in their community or even perhaps in their country, depending on the scope and scale of the attack. But there are a lot of people who uh, their initial reaction to this is to somehow make this an opportunity, make a terrorist attack an opportunity for an, a, an act of, of personal solidarity and while there's nothing wrong with that, and I, I'm not putting anyone down who does it, I do think that it can be extended a bit too far, and it starts to feel like there's a personal branding that takes place after these terrorist attacks. Now, let's put all cards on the table. I'm a commentator, and I work in counterterrorism uh, for the government in the past, so I'm not somebody who is going to be quiet or sit back after a terrorist attack. I'm going to share a lot of opinions, and, I, and I, this is because I think that it's there's an existential struggle for uh, civilization that is underway, and that we are in a fight against a global totalitarianism similar to our Cold War fight against communism, which should be noted led to many many hot wars around the world. We just didn't go to direct war with the Soviet Union as the primary communist opponent. Uh, but there was no shortage of wars. So I, I look at all of this now, and I see a global struggle between, uh, the roughly speaking, the forces of Western civilization, or really just civilization. I, mean, I think now you could say that our allies, like the Japanese uh, and others are, you know, South Korea, are, are every bit as much a part of this fight for civilization as we are, but they're not involved in the fight against jihadism, per se. Uh, they still are a bulwark against uh, the totalitarianism of communism. But Japan and South Korea don't have to worry about the jihad. Europe and America, we do. And so after one of these incidents, I, I understand there's an impulse to want to do something. There's an impulse to want to be in some way uh, supportive, uh, involved, and one of the methods that has become popular in recent years is the Facebook filter. So after, for example, the horrific terrorist attack in 2015 uh, that hit the Stade de France and the Bataclan Theater, there were people who were putting up a, I believe this was the first time I saw it, although it might have been, a late, it might have been after the Nice attack. Um, I know that happened. It might have been the first time. But after a major terrorist attack, people put a filter of the uh, the uh, tricolor, the French flag, uh, the red, white, and blue of the French flag, up over their Facebook or their Twitter avatar as a show of solidarity. And 
I that's fine. I, I I'm not here to to cast aspersions or put judgment on people, especially. Look, if, if it's in your community, if it's in your country, you know, you respond to it as you see fit. But from around the world, I mean, there are a lot of people in, in who knows where who are thinking they're expressing their solidarity. And you do get into a more difficult or more complicated conversation, I think, sometimes about what's the difference between uh, expressions of solidarity with no cost, expressions of solidarity that do not uphold any particular principle other than, of course, the sanctity of life, but, uh, but, but that, that don't engage in the debate. Why did this terrorist attack happen? What can we do to stop the next one? Just expressing condolences is a worthwhile uh, individual exercise, but certainly isn't a part of ending this continuous assault by the forces of uh, radical Islam and global jihadism against us. And I think we all recognize that. So the Facebook filter after a terrorist attack has become a, a thing that people do. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm a little uh, wary of let's all have a candlelight visual and let's have a, a, a James Taylor concert and let's have a, you know, this is not a natural disaster, everybody. We're under attack. All right. These are people that are trying to destroy us. They're other human beings. They have a cohesive ideology. It is global. They are all over the world. They have a lot of support. They have a lot of uh, motivation coming to them both online and in person. So this is not just the way that it is. And I worry that the Facebook filters and the candlelight vigils and the uh, the, you know, the solidarity concerts are lulling us all into a sense of, well, if we just do this, things will be fine. No, we actually have to take a much more active role in this. In, and I know that no one person can do it, but every one person has to do it, if you know what I mean. This has to be an effort that comes from all of us to understand what are the values that we uh, believe in and are willing to fight for and to, in our own way, promote those and don't allow those around you to live in this fantasy that somehow this isn't, that the threat of radical Islam, the threat of jihadism is overhyped in the press, is overplayed, is not something that should concern every American, um, because it certainly does. And it's just a matter of time, my friends, before we are at war with yet another jihadist entity. And I don't just mean the covert and, uh, and multifaceted war against terrorism, uh, I mean, actually, a, a war with another sovereign state that has a Muslim-majority population, whether it's Iran or someone else, it's, it's just a matter of time, I think, if you, look at, if you look at recent history. So it is something that concerns all of us. But back to Facebook filters. Just, I thought this was an interesting, uh, interesting side note. I was reading Slate. I was reading some left-wing stuff over the weekend because I, I like to punish myself. And... There is a piece of why Facebook no longer promotes solidarity filters for profile pictures after a terrorist attack. So Facebook is no longer doing this. And I thought to myself, well, okay, maybe maybe someone within Facebook has gotten the message or, you know, my first thought was, well, it's because a solidarity filter doesn't really have any meaning. The jihadists aren't seeing it. Uh, I, I don't know how many people that are affected see it, but. Uh, or, you know, that live in the country that has been attacked. 
but look, it's harmless. There's there's no bad that comes from it. It comes from a. I mean, there's no you know downside to it, uh, and it comes from a, a good place. And I know some of you listening have put on solidarity filters. And like I said, I'm not putting down solidarity filters. I think that they have a place. It's the, I think it's limited, and I think that we need to not allow ourselves to be lulled into a sense that candlelight vigils and solidarity filters are enough. But here's what's fascinating to me about the way this actually goes down. Uh, Facebook doesn't want to promote solidarity filters anymore, not because it's not enough, not because they want people to be taking action and not just sitting back, you know, whether it's taking action to support charities that are helping those or no, no. They are getting rid of solidarity filters because they feel like it's unfair uh, that some places get more attention than others. Uh, Here's what it says. Facebook's swift decision to promote the solidarity gesture generated backlash in the form of sharp criticism from many who pointed out the lack of such compassionate gestures for crises in Lebanon and Syria. Facebook hasn't promoted a solidarity filter since, the Facebook representative said. The community response to the French flag filter led Facebook to rethink its strategy on promoting solidarity causes. Uh, This is according to a Facebook representative. With an anxiety that the company may appear to be ranking the importance of human suffering depending on which events generated filters and which didn't. Uh... Facebook's safety check has received similar criticism, much of which has been mitigated by the company's decision to turn over activating the feature to a third party. So the problem, uh, 26 million people, by the way, use the rainbow uh, flag overlay for the Supreme Court uh, ruling, for example. Um, so this has been used, uh, and the there was a Mother's Day frame uh, last year that was used by 24 million people. So th- these catch on, and a lot of people do use them. But Facebook wants to stand back from this because they're worried about ranking human suffering. Uh, and essentially, why should there be a solidarity filter for a mass casualty terrorist attack in Paris, the thinking goes, when there are suicide bombings in Baghdad on a weekly or monthly basis? Now... We can get into a longer discussion about the difference between uh, atrocities that occur in a war zone versus atrocities that are specifically committed in countries that uh, are not in the midst of a war. Um, But as you see here, uh, there are social justice politics that even affect who you are allowed to express sympathy for, how you are expressing your sympathy. In effect, Facebook doesn't want to be seen as uh, showing or playing favorites when it comes to humanitarian gestures, because there are some parts of the world where they'd have to have a filter every day. There are some parts of the world where uh, mass casualty violence is all too normalized and regular in occurrence. Uh, but the people that are complaining about Facebook and its French, uh, its, its filter for the uh, French terrorist attack and the attack in, in London, uh, they don't want to discuss why is it there are some parts of the world where this is all too regular in occurrence. And what are the unifying characteristics of those countries where there's widespread violence, where terrorist attacks happen? Why is it that when you look at the State Department's breakdown of terrorist acts around the world, there are a number of countries that dominate in the category, and they all have one thing in common, 
And it's not poverty, and it's not access to weapons, and it's not meddling foreign powers or, you know, they have one thing in common. Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, Somalia, Nigeria. What do all of those countries that would need constant Facebook solidarity filters for all of the human suffering, and it is all too real and it's terrible that it's going on there, but what is the one commonality? And when do we get to address the fact that that seems to be quite an indicator. There's, there's one thing that unifies all of those countries, and we are not supposed to talk about it. No, we're just supposed to, no filters now. Let's not push filters for any place, even though, as we can just see from the news, there are some places for which violence is a regular occurrence. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean those lives are any less precious, doesn't mean that we should mourn less for those lives. But if we're not going to use filters because there's too much violence in some of these countries and so there'd be filters all the time, I just think it'd be worth, saying, worth asking the question, why is there so much violence then? Let's hit a break, team. We'll be right back. The Austrians are getting very strict with their immigration rules. They're changing things so that you can't just, like, show up and be like, oh, look, it's me. I want to do my own culture, and maybe I'll just eat some Wiener schnitzel sometime, but for the most part, I want to be my own person in Austria. Uh, Austria, according to Heat Street here, uh, has passed a law that will fine women who wear an Islamic uh, dress covering for uh, well, wear a veil that covers the whole face, and also will take away welfare benefits from immigrants who fail to learn the language. Yes, you have to learn the German. It's a fantastic language. Yeah, so good. You can't just be like, oh, I, li- I like my own language. I don't want to learn the German because you know, like whatever. You make the fancy cars, but I want, I want to do it my own way. Nope, you gotta learn. You gotta learn German. Um, and uh, the text of the law goes as follows. Quote, those who are not prepared to accept enlightenment values will have to leave our country and society. Women, that's in the text of the law, by the way. Uh, women will face a fine of up to $168 if they wear either the niqab or the burqa. Remember, niqab is just the covering of the face. The burqa, but the eyes are exposed, and sort of there's a slit for the eyes. The burqa is like the gauze covering over the, you can't see anything except someone's ha- the woman's hands. Um, it also, this law will make it illegal for newcomers to, quote, distribute incendiary materials, and migrants will be encouraged to volunteer before acquiring permanent work permits in order to prepare them for life in the workplace. So... This is how Austria is responding to the migrant crisis. Isn't it quite interesting? Why should it be controversial, by the way, that uh, to insist that migrants learn the language of the country they're coming to? Why should it be controversial at all to say that you cannot cover your face? Face is a, it's a public safety issue. It is necessary for public identification, and quite honestly, a society is allowed to promote policies that replicate its values without always falling afoul of the multiculturalists who are ultimately just moral relativists. 
moral relativity or moral relativists are people who believe that they have their way, I have my way. If they think their way is moral, that's fine for them. If I think my way is moral, that's fine for me. There is no universal truth. There is no absolute truth. Uh, moral relativism is corrosive. Unfortunately, it is also a central part of leftist progressive ideology. But moral relativism is the ideological and psychological rot at the very core of all that is wrong with the modern progressive movement in this country. Uh, because, and you can break it all down, right? They, they don't believe in natural law because they don't believe in universal moral law, right? They believe in international law made by international institutions constructed by elites, but they don't believe in universal moral law because they do not believe that there is a universal being that we are all responsible to and for, uh, and that is God. So because they are atheists uh, at their core, whether they go through the rituals and, and communal aspects of religion, because they don't really believe in God, they don't really believe in any inherent or absolute morality. Everything can be shifted, anything can be justified under the circumstances, and therefore the state replaces God, because the state can do anything. It's just a function of power and the whims of the people living there. All right, team, that's going to close up the show for today. As always, please uh, check out the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America now on iTunes. Uh, do tell a friend about it. We're going to have a phenomenal show this week. Got a lot of fun stuff planned for you. Uh, until next time, as always, my beloved team, Buck, Shield Time.